Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we head to Beijing to get a sense on the ground of what the mood is like ahead of the opening ceremonies for the 2022 Winter Games and why a new survey of Canadians shows a lot of us think Team Canada shouldn't even be there at all. We dive into the world of dating apps with New York Times bestselling author Nancy Jo Sales. But first, after less than 18 months, Aaron O'Toole is ousted as federal Conservative Party leader by his own caucus. Where does the party go now? And why do opposition leaders seem to get so little time to prove themselves these days? It may seem fitting on this Groundhog Day that the Conservative Party of Canada finds itself in a familiar spot again without a permanent leader and talking party unity, despite ousting their leader Aaron O'Toole today after just 18 months at the helm by a vote of 73-45 of MPs in the Tory caucus this morning. So not close in the end, but hardly unanimous. Candace Bergen has been named interim leader of the party until they can find a replacement for O'Toole. She was deputy leader under O'Toole and has represented the riding of Portage-Lisgur in Manitoba since 2008. Well, the departing leader, Aaron O'Toole, says he will stay on as an MP, support the next leader, and had these parting words of advice. I'd like to offer some parting thoughts on what I believe our party needs and what this country needs. Was it really that low? At this critical moment. I do this knowing that I've had my moment, my time at the microphone. But I love both the country and my party too much to not comment. This country needs a conservative party that is both an intellectual force and a governing force. Ideology without power is vanity. Seeking power without ideology is hubris. Canadians deserve a government that delivers exemplary management with a foundation based upon values and our decency as a country. What Canadians deserve from a Conservative Party is balance, ideas, and inspiration. Both the Prime Minister and uh, the NDP leader wishing Aaron O'Toole all the best uh, and thanking him for his service. So where does this leave the official opposition? Where does this leave the Conservative Party tonight? Who can unite the party and what will that mean for the political direction it takes? Well, joining me now is Scott Gilmore, editor-at-large for Maclean's Magazine. Welcome to the show, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Uh, were you surprised that he was taken down so decisively in this vote? I mean, it wasn't even really close at the end. They both went in thinking they probably had quite a few votes. I, I was. I would think that if that large percentage of your caucus was sharpening their knives, that he would have you know, at least heard it a little earlier and have taken some steps, perhaps privately or publicly, to try to head it off. And perhaps he did and we didn't notice, but it did seem to catch him by surprise as much as it did us. <laughs> That must say something about how much control he had over his caucus as well. Yeah, uh, you know, there has to be, in the list of jobs you don't want in Canada, being the leader of an opposition party has to be very high up on it. Uh, the Trying to control your caucus is like trying to herd a, uh, a herd of angry cats. And he, there are a long list of opposition leaders before him who failed to do it. In fact, my colleague uh, Paul Wells and McLean's mm-hmm. pointed out recently that in the, the last eight opposition leaders of all the parties, only one of them has successfully uh, become prime minister afterwards, and that was Stephen Harper. So it's, right. um, it, it, it's, it's not a job that usually has a happy ending. I was going to ask you that a bit later, but since we touched on it, um, 
It seems like opposition parties give their leaders very little rope these days with which to uh, with which to play with. I mean, I think of Andrew Shearer, I think now of Aaron O'Toole, Thomas Mulcair, all people who you know may have had a shot at the big at the win, and uh, if they didn't win the first time out, it was one and done. Yeah, and, and I don't think it was always like that. Robert Stanfield, if we can go back a long ways, was given two or three shots, uh, two three kicks at the can before uh, he was kicked out. And in the past, we've seen others like Ed Broadbent who were able to uh, to, to try for the uh, the brass ring and stuck around for a long time. But we do seem to be doing one and done. And I think the Conservative Party uh, members, not necessarily party voters, but party members, are becoming pretty agitated. The fact that nothing they seem to be doing seems to be working and that they're looking at a, at a long future in front of them in opposition unless something changes. Do you think, um, I mean, it must be damaging though, if every time you go to the polls, the party that you may be considering supporting, if you're an independent, for instance, or agnostic, has a new leader? Yeah, you would think so. It's important to point out that the vast majority of Canadians are independent or politically agnostic or nonpartisan. You know, the, the, we, we tend to, at least, you know, myself as a, as a political writer, we tend to focus on the partisans, the party members, the, the, the squeaky wheels. But most Canadians don't really want to put up with that nonsense and, and don't put up with that nonsense. And they do want to see some consistency in their leaders. And so it is an interesting question to raise. I'm not sure whether it's all going to depend, of course, on who they replace uh, Aaron O'Toole with, but I'm not sure how Canadians are going to react. So in that sense, what did you make of, of Aaron O'Toole's 18 months? Uh, it seemed to start off okay. Um, he certainly showed, I thought, more passion in the last 48 hours than he had in the past 48 weeks at some times, or at least he appeared more focused uh, while, while fighting for his job. But how would you assess his, his 18 months and, and where, did he, where did it all go wrong for him? Well, you're absolutely right. The last 48 hours seem to be different. I mean, to, to paraphrase Macbeth, you know, nothing in his political life became him like the leaving of it. He, uh, his, his speech that you were just playing before I came on here was possibly one of the best he's given. And it was, it was one of the most statesmanlike speeches he's given, which is perhaps the reason why he's you know, on his way out. He, the, the, the great complaint that we're hearing over the last few days from conservatives, particularly the ones that have tossed him out of, uh, out of office, was that he wasn't conservative enough in their eyes, that he was too soft on climate change, that he had run against the climate tax and then, and then had adopted it that he, his support for abortion was, was, uh, was weak or was at least not uh, as orthodox as they like it. His, his positions on LGBTQ ideology and on the lockdowns and on COVID and, and most recently on the truck convoy. But the problem is, is that while his positions sort of went back and forth and weren't nearly orthodox enough for his caucus, they were too orthodox for the vast majority of Canadian voters. And so this is going to be the great dilemma of whoever replaces him. And again, I, I was going to ask you about the protest because it felt like what happened over the last week, or at least uh, the lead up to the protest and then the arrival on Parliament Hill of the convoy, sort of acted like like fuel on the fire for what just happened. I, I, of course, many people were pointing out today that the protest didn't manage to get rid of Justin Trudeau, but they did get rid of Aaron O'Toole. I'm wondering if that's fair or not. But You know, it, it's, um, it clearly was perhaps not coincidental. I'm not sure if it was the catalyst. And I, I have a small personal anecdote to, to illustrate this point. 
Five or six years ago, I went across the country and uh, hosted a series of dinners to, to talk to disgruntled conservatives like myself about, you know, what should a new conservative party look like in Canada? And to organize that, I purchased the domain newconservative.ca. And over the last month, that site has been repeatedly attacked by hackers who've been trying to brute force the password and take over the domain. And, and it didn't occur to me until this morning but perhaps that was somebody who knew that we were going, we were coming to the end of the Aaron O'Toole leadership and they were hoping to grab the new conservative.ca domain for their own, their own leadership uh, site. Right. So you, it, it is, it is I, I, the convoy today. I mean, the, what's been going on in Ottawa clearly has grabbed everybody's attention, but this has been going on for a long time. The, the, uh, the unhappiness within his caucus and the, the ability to get that many members of, of parliament, that many members of, or of the caucus to put their names down as being opposed to them, that probably took weeks, if not months. Scott, so the more centrist party, the optimistic conservatism of O'Toole, if you want to call it that, is gone. What now? Well, the party right now, the party caucus and the, the more active members are very much of the, the right side of the of our conservative party they're the conservative conservatives and so i think that we can almost certainly expect that the successful uh whoever's going to win the leadership race is going to be even farther right than andrew Scheer was and definitely farther right than where aaron o'toole campaigned in the last leadership race um there is this expectation it's almost a cliche that conservative leaders run for leadership on the right and then tack to the center when to become prime minister and that liberal leaders do the exact opposite that they run on the left and then tack to the center when they become or in order to become prime minister. Um, but that tacking to the center really did not work for Sheer or O'Toole. In fact, it's only seemed to have worked for Harper and I'm not sure which lesson the next leader of the party is going to take that trying to be a centrist isn't going to help them anyway. And therefore they need to go farther right or that they need to learn some of the lessons that, that uh, going back to Mulroney and Harper, that if you want to lead this country, you have to have a party that reflects this country and reflects the broad views that we have in this country, which is typically, you know, a small C conservative country that is socially liberal. And um, we clearly don't see that type of policy attitude with the, with the current contenders for leadership. You brought this up in that 2017 article, but do you see a home for for for, for small C conservatives now that don't necessarily uh, align with a lot of what's being said on by MPs of many of the 73 today that voted out uh, Aaron O'Toole? You know, I don't yet, and it, it's it's very interesting that you know um, Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau has won the last two elections with the smallest percentage of the vote that I think historically we've even had in Canada for a successful uh, uh, prime ministerial race. He's not popular. He's not even that popular in the Liberal Party right now. He's, he's almost popular by default, and he seems to have done everything he can over the last several years to make himself even less popular. And so you would think that this would be the easiest time for a conservative to run against him and, and, and to form a majority government. But they, um, you know, my, my colleague, uh, Paul Wells, wrote a column today where he points a little bit to the fact that, that Canadian conservatives are becoming increasingly more aligned with their American counterparts, with the Republican Party, which it traditionally has not been the case. Canadian conservatives have often been more aligned with British conservatives and Australian conservatives. 
And personally, I'm reminded of a, of a moment in Canadian history when uh, Preston Manning had emerged from the West as this new voice of Canadian uh, conservatism and was being embraced in the U.S. and was invited down to Washington where he went on um, one of the, the Sunday morning conservative talk shows with Newt Gingrich and a few of the other grandees of the Republican Party. And it was supposed to be this sort of North American family reunion. But in fact, what happened was almost embarrassing for everybody involved because they discovered midway through this interview that Preston Manning actually did believe in gun control and universal health care and some of the other issues that were <laughs> considered to be absolutely uh, sacrosanct uh, in the, in, amongst the Republicans. And that's changed now, though. You know, for example, uh, Candace Bergen, who's now the interim leader of the Conservative Party as of this evening, um, was recently photo- photographed with a, with a MAGA hat on her head. And you, in the last election in the United States, frequently saw on social media uh, young Canadian conservative political staffers who were volunteering in the United States. Um, so are they listening to Fox News or are they listening to, to CBC and CTV? And if they are listening to Fox News, are they learning any lessons that can actually be applied north of the border? Or are they learning all the wrong lessons about what's working south of the border? And there was an interesting tweet today from a Global Mail journalist who I, I'm going to now forget who it was. And that's that's awful. I'll have to go back and look. But saying, you know, the conservatives are great, are not great at reading the room. They're great at reading their room. Um, and that might be a problem going forward because clearly O'Toole's ideas were probably correct. Maybe his tactics within the party were incorrect, but his, his, his ideas were correct as far as we could tell. Uh, and given another chance, who knows? I mean, you know, people were getting familiar with him. He was fairly likable. I I thought, um, you know, a pretty solid guy, a pretty good politician finding his feet. Um, what, what another few years might've happened, what it brought with Aaron O'Toole. I guess we'll never find out. No, we won't. And I can assure you the next several months are going to be very interesting, too, to see what uh, what comes next. Yeah, lots of uh, any 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 early bets on who that next or who at least may be in the running, seriously in the running? Well, that point you just made about they're very good at reading their room is an important one, because that that does seem to be the case. And that being the case, most people in Ottawa are expecting that Pierre Polyev, a, a, a local Ottawa uh, member of parliament uh, uh, is the most likely uh, candidate to replace him. And the reason being is that he is um, very, very good at getting attention and very, very good at, at, at shouting during question period of, of dropping memes online of saying, you know, using snark to the maximum on, on social media, which plays very, very well to their room. But for most Canadians, they at the, at the very least roll their eyes and at, at, at worst, maybe even just turn off the radio when they hear these partisan attacks and the, the hyperbole about how Justin Trudeau is destroying the country. You might dislike Justin Trudeau, but he's rarely guilty of the things that he's accused of in question period and on conservative Facebook uh, groups. So uh, they're going to look around the room and unfortunately they may end up picking something like Pierre Polyev, which will not play well necessarily across the rest of the country. It'll certainly be an interesting time ahead as we see where the party heads and uh, and all the speculation about who, in fact, may lead next and where they may bring the party. In the meantime, the Liberals, I guess, get to enjoy uh, another respite from uh, effective opposition, at least for a while. Scott Gilbert, thanks so much. My pleasure. Have a great evening.
Well, the competition is already underway at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, including in mixed doubles curling and ice hockey. The Canadian women are taking on Switzerland as we speak. But what about the atmosphere? I guess that's what a lot of a lot of us have been wondering about uh, recently dealing with COVID, obviously. For those who may remember all those images of celebration for the 2008 Summer Games, how do these ones compare with no fans from outside the country? Beijing can be pretty frigid in the winter. With some answers, I'm joined by Mark Dreyer from Beijing. Uh, he's with ChinaSportsInsider.com and the author of a new book called Sporting Superpower that I highly recommend, a look at how China has changed from one Olympics to the next. Mark, welcome. Uh, great to be back. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Um, the cauldron isn't yet lit. Events are already underway, and I hear China's doing well at curling. So the games begin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, off to, <laughs> uh, off to a perfect start. Um, as soon as I get um, get off with you, I'll, uh, I'll tune in to see how the, the Chinese women ice hockey. Thanks for, for that reminder. I'd uh, <laughs> forgotten to fire that one up. But uh, yeah, the, it's going to have some interesting matchups, both on the men's and the women's side, actually. Uh, the men, of course, as, as uh, listeners probably know, will be playing. Uh, will be playing uh, Canada and the US, but uh, NHL players won't be there, so the, the games will be a little bit more competitive than they could have been otherwise. I, I know you've answered this question a thousand times already, but now that the games are here, um, and we all think back to two thousand and eight, what is? The, I know it's the middle of winter in Beijing, but what is the mood like, and how festive and Olympic does it feel? really it, it's a kind of a nuanced question i'll try to give a summary so first of all this week is holiday week it's the chinese new year right. week and right. so people are off and people are out and they're they're kind of celebrating with their family but they're they're focused on you know family time they're not necessarily focused on the olympics uh in terms of you know a comparison to 2008 of course there are no foreign spectators at all there are very few foreigners still left in in beijing <laughs> these days anyway um and so it doesn't feel like an international sporting event, you know, with people dressed up in, their, you know, like like you have at World Cups with the fans from all over the, the, the world uh, dressed up in their nation's colors. So you don't have any of that. Um, throw in things like, you know, it's winter, so it's colder outside and the winter games are smaller than the summer games anyway. It's not the first time that, that China has held the game, so you don't have that novelty factor. And then, of course, COVID, uh, where people are, you know, a little bit worried about, going out and, and 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 mixing with other people so all of those things kind of it basically dampen what, what could have been a, more of a festive atmosphere that's not to say it's it's you know it's it's all dark and gloomy i think when the opening ceremony uh you know gets going uh, tv sets across the nation will be tuned in from you know 8 p.m our time tomorrow evening here on friday you know i think that will that will sort of flick a switch to a certain extent uh but so far you know, I've, I've had people comment to me, it's like, wow, I barely even know the Olympics are on. Um, obviously, I've been following it closely in the build-up, um, but but not everyone has. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Beijing is massive, of course, so there's often things going on. You wouldn't know what was going on in another part of town, but but I, I hear what you're saying for sure. Uh, there was so much talk going into this about how the zero COVID policy would work. We've seen a lot of, I guess, athletes and officials testing positive. How is that working so far? How is the whole COVID protection plan working so far for the Olympics? I think you have to say from a Chinese perspective, it's been successful. Um, there have been a bunch of cases, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, I think it's the last I heard it was something like, uh, you know, 60 or 70 uh, athletes and team officials. They haven't actually broken it down. So unless an athlete, um, uh, him or herself, declares that they have tested positive, we don't actually know. And it could just be a team official or a coach or, or whatever. So we don't have specifics. And of course, as soon as you get 
these uh, the two negative tests, um, then then you're allowed back into into the the competition zone. Um, the reason I say it's successful despite that number is that China knows that they can't stop people testing positive on arrival. But with very few exceptions, they've been catching everyone at the airport. Um, and then there've been a, a smaller number sort of inside, but it doesn't feel at all like COVID is is out in the bubble and, and people are sort of infecting each other inside, which was kind of like the big worry. And I think realistically, as long as they can make sure that that doesn't happen and they kind of screen people uh, coming in, um, then sort of say is a, is a success. Hopefully, of course, it doesn't affect too many athletes. Um, we've seen some who are unable to get on the plane, even to, to board, to, to, to come to China in the first place. We haven't had too many, you know, massively high profile, you know, medal favorites uh, testing out at the moment. Um, but, you know, that obviously is a worst case scenario. But uh, hopefully of the, you know, 3000 athletes or so that we have, the vast majority will be able to, to compete. We just have about another minute before the break, and I'll come back after the break to ask you this again. But the loop, though, that whole system they had in place to bring all these athletes in and then isolate them, that seems to be working as far as we can tell from the from the, from far away. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, <laughs> there's no flexibility whatsoever. It's watertight. I'll give you an example. Um, I've heard people uh, say, well, you know, I'm trying to get to a place which is a five minute walk away. They don't let you walk. You have to take a bus. You have to take the loop transport. So that means sometimes, you know, waiting out in the cold for 20, 25 minutes and then a 30 minute bus ride uh, because they got to go all around the houses to, to get to where they're going and drop <laughs> off uh, other people on the way. So uh, some frustrations, of course, but, uh, you know, safety first is, is very much the message here. Uh, and that's what they're sticking to. We're getting an update from Beijing on the upcoming Olympic Games. The cauldron lights uh, soon little more than 24 hours. Mark Dreyer of ChinaSportsInsider.com, an author of Sporting Superpowers with us now. I guess one of the big stories that we'll all be watching, and we're going to hear a lot about if we watch any of the coverage, is the story of Eileen Gu, an American-born freestyle skier who has switched sides to represent China. What's all the controversy about, Mark? Well, uh, it's the switching sides. I mean, quite quite simply, you know, she was born and raised in San Francisco. And then three years ago, uh, she decided that she was going to represent um, the, the the land of her, her mother's birth, which uh, which is China. Uh, she's grew up, you know, uh, she, she's, she's uh, bilingual. She's bicultural. Uh, she's she's very comfortable in in, in both countries. Uh, but she's fantastically talented. She may very well get three gold medals in freestyle skiing. So she is basically going to be the face of these games from a Chinese perspective. And of course, given the conversation, um, you know, geopolitically with the US and China, that just takes it to an app, you know, stratospheric new level. Um, there's a bunch of other uh, people, you know, I'm just watching the hockey uh, uh, um, as, as you, you referenced earlier. And there's a, there's a bunch of Canadians and in fact, some Americans on the Chinese women's team and also on the men's team as well. Um, but they just haven't captured the imagination in the same way because they don't, you know, they don't have the profile of Eileen Goop. Number one, she's fantastically talented. She's going to win um, uh, medals, but potentially gold and potentially uh, multiple ones. And then she's also got a huge number of endorsements. There was a report in Chinese media um, just last week saying that, that she makes 35 million US dollars per year uh, from her 20 plus endorsement deals, most of them, um, you know, uh, in fact, both global and, and, uh, and Chinese brands. I gather she made that switch when she was 15 though, still, still in high school when she decided she was going to compete for China. 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds young, and it is young, um, but she's she's obviously incredibly smart. She's going to Stanford in the uh, in the fall. I, I think that it was a more considered uh, decision, uh, perhaps, you know, made, I'm sure, with, with her family's uh, support and, and so on. So it's hard to kind of judge externally, well, she didn't know what she was doing. Uh, of course, three years ago, none of us knew what the conversation was going to be around China that it is today, and particularly with the US and China, that has ramped up. Um, several degrees, uh, as it has with other countries as well. So, so that's kind of, uh, I would say, unfortunate for her. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, with that benefit of hindsight, would she have done the same thing again? Um, from an athlete's perspective, she's still very good friends with the with the members of the the US ski team uh, that that she was previously teammates with. Um, so those people don't have a problem with it. It's it's just uh, <laughs> it's just kind of people who are on the outside looking in. A lot of people judging, saying it's all about the money. A lot of people sort of, you know, uh, criticizing her for, for betraying the U.S. But, you know, frankly, she's American and she's Chinese. She can only compete for one nation. Um, but, yes, uh, it's it's definitely a, a big point of interest for, for a lot of people. And, and there's some uncertainty around exactly what her citizenship is. She hasn't really spoken about it. A lot of questions have been asked. So I think she is going to be facing some some uncomfortable questions at some of the press conferences uh, over the coming days. And you were on the Today Show talking about this, I understand, Mark. That's how interested yes. people are about Eileen Goo. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I'm actually <laughs> she calling me up again later today. So, uh, ah. yeah, I mean, this is um, this is uh, it, it's a big topic. I mean, it's just it's absolutely you know she uh, she ticks every box. You know, she's young, she's yeah. talented, she she's fan, you know like she's a fashion model. Um, she's U.S. and and Chinese. You know, so for these games yeah. with the biggest broadcaster of the games, NBC. Uh, with the games in China. I mean, it, you couldn't have a better story. Um, it, it, it combines politics, business and sports, you know, and, and to be honest, that's 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 sort of emblematic of, of what I tried to write about in my book. You know, the fact that here in China, particularly, you can't separate those three things, politics, business and sports. You really can't more than any other country, I'd say, um, which is fascinating. There's so much to talk about, uh, but it does make things complicated as well. <laughs> that was the last question I was going to ask you. I mean, I remember what the what the local press was like, uh, at least the English language press around the Olympics in two thousand and eight. What has been the re what has been the approach of of Chinese state media to to this? Has it been as as the tone any different, considering the geopolitical circumstances are significantly different than they were in two thousand and eight? Well, it's important to remind readers, um, you know, the censorship here is, is pretty full on at all times. And so a lot of the stuff that we read in the West, uh, in the English language, Chinese state media is uh, directed solely at an external audience. Uh, what, what domestically people are consuming is very, very different. So, you know, within China, she celebrated as, as a, a potential Chinese star and, and, and one of faces of these games, if not the face of the games. Um, you know, her, her face is, is kind of on billboards. You'd remember uh, Liu Shang, the hurdler, who was kind of plastered mm -hmm. all over town uh, in 2008. Well, it's Eileen Gu this time around. So um, it's very much, um, you know, she's a big star. She's she's our she's our athlete. Uh, you know, the more extreme uh, media are probably sort of celebrating it as a as a geopolitical gift. The fact that she switched, you know, from all the countries, she switched from the U.S. Uh, to to China. Uh, but externally, it, it's sort of a different message, and they're trying to counter the narrative. But that conversation doesn't really seep into Chinese um, domestic media at all.
yeah, I guess I guess overall the media, how are they treating the games in general? Is it, is it with with a lot of uh, with a lot of nationalism and, and sort of reflection of what we might expect in the geopolitical circumstances, or is it fairly toned down and fairly sports oriented? It's a bit of both. Um, you know, I I tend to watch the um, uh, the sports channels more than the news channels, so perhaps <laughs> perhaps it, it, it's it's more of a kind of a pure sporting thing. I'm very interested to see what happens at the opening ceremony. I'm I'm hearing a few things uh, that might be of of interest along this. I I I don't want to say anything just because we don't know if they're going to happen yet. But um, you know, watch out for the uh, what I will say is watch out for kind of the the torch relay and and who's who's uh you know selected to 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 carry the torch in the, in the final stages. We don't know yet. We don't have um you know there's just speculation swirling at the moment but i think there could be some uh, some significance there as well and you know everything with with this particularly an opening ceremony everything is going to be very carefully calculated and planned uh, no coincidences they like to say in china um i don't believe that uh the, you know all the time but i think for something as meticulous as the planning for an opening ceremony uh, i think it's a fair assessment Mark Dreyer of China Sports, ChinaSportsInsider.com and author of Sporting Superpower. Thanks so much for your update from Beijing. As always, appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. You know, when I think about the Winter Olympics, I think about Sidney Crosby's overtime gold medal goal in Vancouver in 2010. I was in Beijing watching it at the time. Tessa Virtue and Scott Moore taking top spot in ice dancing in Pyeongchang last time out. Speed skater Cindy Klassen winning five gold medals in Turin in 20, 2006. And of course, that famous win in Salt Lake City for the Canadian women knocking off the U.S. 3-2 to win gold with that lucky loony. We've had a lot to celebrate when it comes to the Winter Games, but how are we feeling about these ones? Mario Conseco, president of Research and Co., joins me now because he's done some research into this. And um, Mario, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Ben. Great to be here with you. What did you find out about how Canadians are feeling about these particular games? Well, we started asking questions about Beijing 2022 in April of last year. And of course, the backdrop to all of this is the situation related to the two Michaels, uh, the detention of Meng Huangzhou in Vancouver, and growing tension between China and Canada. And at the time, we had 56% of Canadians who thought it would be best to have a full boycott of the Olympic Games. Um, we measured this three other times, the last one just a week ago, and we see now 59% of Canadians who believe that the right course of action when it comes to these Winter Games is to not send Canadian athletes. That would seem very high uh, and certainly very steady, considering the Michaels, of course, have been released. Um, what, did you get any, any idea of what was driving that sentiment and why it hasn't shifted at all in the past, uh, in the past while, since April of last year? Well, there's a couple of issues at play. I think one of them is uh, the fact that uh, because we do not have the NHL players participating in the games, it takes a little bit of the edge of the hardcore sports fan who wants to watch Team Canada with the NHL players. I think that definitely played a role in the fact that the numbers haven't moved. But more than anything, I think it's an understanding of the fact uh, that Canadians are still very upset with everything that happened with China over the past couple of years. We also measure uh, the way Canadians feel about foreign countries every six months. And for China, we've had three consecutive measurements of around 20%. So we're at a situation right now where China is in the same group of countries that Canadians just don't like uh, with Iran, with North Korea, with Saudi Arabia. 
which is very different from the numbers that we probably had four or five years ago before all of this happened. So I think more than anything, even though Canadians really like the winter games, uh, we have a lot of people who are dissatisfied because this is happening in Beijing right now. If the games were being held in Norway, in Sweden, in Denmark, in the United States, the numbers would not be as high as they are when it comes to a boycott. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Uh, and, and you also found, I think, that, that even those who are going to watch might not be watching as much. Well, this is one of the issues that is quite uh, fascinating to me because um, we have 47% of Canadians who say that they will make a conscious effort not to watch the games. Uh, this is a combination of different types of uh, of uh, Canadians, you know, some who just don't like sports, who don't want to watch television, don't care about the winter games. But there's a significantly large component of people who just don't want to tune into this edition of the games because they are happening in China. And, and what is quite surprising to me is the high level of support for a boycott, particularly in a province like Quebec. This is a place that goes crazy over short, speed, short track speed skating. Uh, it's not as if the Canadians have had a good year. So this was an opportunity for Quebecers to rally behind Team Canada. And it's just not happening. I think there's certainly a situation there where the fact that the games are happening in Beijing is making Canadians think twice about it, almost to the point where roughly half of us are, are saying, I'll do something else for the next couple of weeks. I don't want to tune into this spectacle. I'm speaking with Mario Canseco, president of Research and Co. Don't remind me about the Canadians, Mario. I'm from Montreal, so I'm still it's still hurting this year how, ba how bad Sorry they are. Sorry about that. Uh, ah, that's okay. Um, what, what I found interesting, too, you did do some breakdown about, about just sort of politically age-wise, sort of the demographics of these numbers. Where was support, where was sort of opposition to these games the strongest that you found? Which age groups, which geographies, which politics? Well, uh, there's certainly a higher level of support for a boycott in British Columbia and in Quebec. I wasn't surprised about British Columbia because we were following the story related to China closer than anybody else in the country. When we asked about Huawei, when we asked about uh, the Meng Wanzhou case, uh, we always had a fairly slow, low level of undecided respondents in BC. So the fact that the games are happening in Beijing um, it means that more British Columbians were actually figuring out whether they wanted to watch them or not, and were more aware of the situation than what we see in some other parts of the country. Uh, what is really striking is um, there is more support for the boycott among people who voted for the Conservative Party. And, you know, we've seen that consistently over the past few years. 67% uh, of them say that they don't want to see Canadian athletes in Beijing. Uh, but the level of support is also quite high among Liberal voters at 63% and NDP voters at 62%. So usually you have a situation where a decision taken by a government might be met uh, with a lot of uh, dismay from people who didn't vote for the party that is in power. In this case, uh, that is not the situation at all. The, the level of support for a boycott is equally high for New Democrats, for Liberals, and for Conservatives. So there was no political um, damage for the government if they had decided to push forward uh, with a full boycott instead of the diplomatic boycott, which essentially means that there's not going to be any government official waving flags tomorrow as they open the game. So I think that the, the appetite was there consistently for a significantly more profound gesture of dismay towards China than what we're going to be seeing tomorrow, which is essentially the diplomatic boycott. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Did you see any differences in ages in terms of the young, you know, younger, younger people you pulled, older people, but how they felt about it? Was there any, any, any differences there? There's a little bit of a movement, uh, you know, 54% of those who are middle-aged uh, between the ages of 35 and 54 supportive of the boycott. It climbs a little more with millennials. If you're aged 18 to 34, 59% of them believe that we shouldn't be sending the athletes. Uh, but it's the over 55s that are definitely commanding things. 65% who believe that Canadian athletes should not be in Beijing right now. And, and one of the things that is constant throughout the entire survey is the notion also of uh, the athletes being in danger. I think there's a lot of Canadians who are remembering what happened to the two Michaels. And, you know, we're not going to have the same type of coverage that we had, for instance, in Japan. You know, the, the TV crews are going to be followed around. Uh, even though uh, the broadcasters paid a lot of money for the games, uh, we're not right. going to see the same types of teams that we've deployed in other uh, instances. So it's going to be a little bit different to get a flavor of the local communities, especially when you're in Beijing and you're probably going to be watched. Yeah, I, I don't imagine we'll get much of a flavor uh, at all, actually, uh, of, of outside of the Olympics, given given this whole system they have uh, in, in place to try and safeguard the athletes and uh, with the zero COVID policies in place. It will be fascinating to watch just what kind of coverage we're going to see over the course of the uh, the games themselves. You know, I mean, I, I, Olympics have often been controversial. Sochi was obviously controversial with what yeah. was going on in Ukraine at the time. Do you sense that once the games begin, that there may be a softening of attitudes? Uh, I don't know if you could have told that through your research, uh, but did you get a sense there may be a softening of attitudes once the games actually get underway and it stops being about the politics and about the controversies and starts to somewhat become about the sport? Well, I think that is uh, the million-dollar question in a way. You know, I remember back in 2010 when the Olympics were happening in Vancouver, there was a lot of skepticism from the local community. I think people felt threatened by what was happening. They weren't happy with all of these vehicles that had the right of way. And essentially with their city being taken over by a bunch of people who maybe were just going to be there for a couple of weeks, everything changed after the medal started to fall. And I think we wound up in Vancouver, particularly from a community that wasn't necessarily welcoming to the International Olympic Committee to a community that was very happy that the games actually took place. Without those gold medals, maybe this doesn't really happen. So there might be some sort of cleansing effect if we start to win some medals as a country and then people start to pay attention. But at this stage, I think what we see from most Canadians is that the fact that the games are happening there is not making them particularly happy. And, and obviously, if we have a lot of moments when Canadian athletes do well, this might change. Um, but it certainly suggests that uh, we're not happy with the fact that the games are going to be taking place in China. Without everything that has been happening over the past couple of years, maybe the numbers would be different. But uh, Canadians are not forgetting very easily what happened to the two Michaels. I think that's more than anything what the survey tells us. Yeah, our, our love for the games overshadowed by our dislike for the host at this point in time. When do you look into this again, Mary? Are you going to do a little follow-up on this to find out what our attitudes are after the games? We will. We did the same thing uh, during the Tokyo Games, essentially trying sure. to figure out whether Canadians were following the games, if there were specific events that they were watching more intently than others. And ultimately, that is also going to show us whether people actually mean it when they say that they want to tune out. You know, we will have the ratings at the end. And also... 
um, what the future is going to have when it comes to winter sports. You know, there's a lot of curiosity and there's a lot of people who look at the boycott as something that is akin to what happened in the 1980s. You know, these are professional right. athletes. The notion of somebody who's not going to be able to train is just not something that we have in this century. Mario Canseco, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben, anytime. I hear so much these days about dating apps, and I was curious about this. Just how popular are they? How fast are they growing? How fast is revenue growing for the companies that own them? In one word, lots. Stats from Business of Apps shows the number of users worldwide is now approximately 324 million. That's in 2021, bringing in revenue of about $5.6 billion, approximately, according to Business of Apps. And that is expected to double by 2026. So in a nutshell, more and more people are using them and the companies that run them are making more and more money, it would appear. Well, my next guest has spent years looking into dating apps and their impact. And I'll tell you, she doesn't really like what she sees, to put it mildly. Joining me now from New York is Nancy Nancy Joe Sales. She's the author of Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno, a New York Times bestselling author and a writer at the popular magazine Vanity Fair. Welcome to the show, Nancy Joe. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> this is such a huge topic. I mean, we could talk about this for ages, but I, I guess just for listeners who may not be entirely familiar with just how much has changed uh, due to mobile dating apps in the last while, I heard you refer to it as the biggest change in, in 10 to 15,000 years. Why is that? I was told that by an evolutionary biologist who actually uh, works at the Kinsey Institute. Um, you know, this is a big research uh, think tank, and uh, he's a research scientist at one of the biggest uh, research institutes for dating and mating, as they call it in America, and I think the world. And his name is Justin Garcia. And when Tinder first dropped in like 2013, 2014, I did an interview with him, sort of assessing how users were experiencing dating apps. Dating apps were being rolled out as um, this wonderful thing, and you know, the the sort of uh, wonder boys of Silicon Valley are revolutionizing, disrupting dating. And isn't it so great? But what I was hearing from mostly women, but men too, some uh, was, you know, as I started to approach it as a journalist from the user's perspective was that there were a lot of downsides that were not being discussed. And it seemed to me that there were some, major shifts going on and how people related to each other in the world of dating. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder what somebody at Kinsey thinks of this. So I got in touch with this guy, Justin Garcia. He's an expert evolutionary biologist, like I said, on dating. He said, yeah, this is, we haven't seen anything like this in terms of a shift in how people, what they call mate in since the agricultural revolution, some 10 to 15,000 years ago, this is what he said. What happened back then, 10 to 15,000 years ago, was people became uh, less nomadic, more settling down and um, doing agriculture, the agricultural revolution. So in that big change, they started doing what people started doing, what's called um, pair bonding and settling down and raising children instead of as a sort of still as a collective, but more in um, pairs, what we now know as like a couple, you know, and um, that was sort of, well, Silicon Valley likes to call it disrupted by um, dating apps, which give people um, 
endless options, or at least the perception that they have endless options. You're no longer in your small community. You're no longer in your small town. You're no longer in your, you know, um, village of even in even in big cities like New York, there are different villages. I was just watching The Gilded Age on HBO, and and somebody, one of the characters on this said, New York is a city of villages, and it's still really true to a certain extent. Or your village might be your industry. You know, people used to meet meet people at work. This suddenly was a way. Now, online dating had existed before, but dating apps made it um, quicker, faster, mobile. This is a way for people to have instant access to a seemingly endless array of options. And what this did was change the way that people approached um, their potential dating partners. Now, this is a controversial aspect of the research that I've done and that other, you know, scientists have remarked upon, but it's, it certainly seems to have created, especially a change in how straight men view dating. Because oftentimes you hear, and this exists for not just for dating apps, but you know, other things too, that it is an extension of real life. Uh, but you've argued that it really isn't. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you could get into something very philosophical, like what is real and what is not real? And are we in a simulation and all that kind of thing? But if you just, if you want to say like, is it like life was before? No, it's absolutely not like life was before. Very quickly, um, within a nanosecond in terms of um, our evolution. And, you know, there was this very dramatic change in how people what people, ha- what access people had to each other and how quickly and also anonymously, because in the past um, dating, even though, yes, there were anonymous hookups and there were one night stands and there was um, that, you know, seeing a stranger across a crowded room or in a bar or whatever that, that did happen. But mostly as, as long as dating, as we know it has existed, which is really in our modern conception, only like about a hundred and something years. And that's a whole other discussion, which I won't go into and bore you all your readers, why, why that happened with women moving from rural places to cities and starting to live on their own. But um, it is uh, very different from then because even up until very recently, people generally uh, dated people with whom they had some other friends or family members in common or, or, or some sort of community through which they met this person, a connection, a network. And that's no longer the case with dating apps. We've been talking about dating apps, um, the impact they've had, how much they've changed dating in general. Um, one thing that always pops up is, is I do know lots of people who use dating apps and some people have very good experiences on them. So what do you recommend for you know, for people using them in terms of just how to get the best out of them and avoid the worst. Even though you might know someone and I might know someone, and I do know someone, I went to a wedding where the two people had met on Grindr, um, friends of mine. And, but that's not data, right? Just because we know someone and we see something in the vows section of the New York times, that says these people met on Tinder or whatever. That's not data. And there is very little data about how many actual, um, you know, images or long-term relationships th- these apps are leading to. The only, the only real hard data that exists at this point is from Pew Research Center, which says 39% of people who use dating apps, and that's as of like a year or two ago, 
find marriages or or long-term relationships. Now, it didn't the data didn't break down, which it was, and that's I think an important thing to know. Um, my pro and thirty nine percent. I mean, if there was a COVID vaccine that was thirty percent. 39% effective, would you sign up to get that? You know, I mean, like, that's not a lot of chance, but it's the promise. It's the, it's the, um, it's the hope and it's the promise. And again, I think that's what they, they rely on and they even exploit in us is our, our need for connection. I would argue that they're actually leading to making it harder for us to find true and lasting connections because well, let me just finish this one point because this is the part that people don't really think about. So once you're on these apps, um, you and you are almost instantly addicted because that's how they're designed. It's like having smoked cigarettes at one point in your life. I think I've said this before in another interview, but it's, it, it's a very, um, powerful thing for anyone who's ever been addicted to anything at one point I don't smoke anymore but I but I was a smoker once upon a time and to this day even though I haven't smoked in 20 years if I am really super stressed or I you know I'm having a bad really really bad day I sometimes want a cigarette I don't smoke it but I like have to fight the addiction you know addiction is addiction it gets it gets into the pathways of your brains and your neurons so you're in a marriage you're in a relationship things aren't going well, you have a fight, you're having, you're not having sex for a while, you have kids, and it's become tense. These relationships have ups and downs, you know, like, you have to fight through the bad times. But if you've once upon a time been addicted to dating apps, it's very easy then. And I've seen it. And I've heard it. And I've done so many interviews about it. It's very easy then to fall back on that and say, well, my wife or my husband is not being very nice to me and not making me feel good about things or about my work or my body or whatever. I'm just going to go on a dating app and get some of that, you know, that famous like supposed ego boost, which is also not always really true. It's like very short term. I'm going to get that ego boost by swiping. And then the next thing you know, you're talking to someone and is that cheating is that emotional cheating? And then the next thing you know, I just talked to a woman the other day for a long time who uh, found out in a 30-year marriage that her husband had been cheating on her on dating apps. It's very easy now. You could be sitting, lying in bed next to your spouse and they could be on their phone saying they're doing, or their computer saying they're doing work and they're talking to someone else. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's doing that. I'm just saying that it has opened up a Pandora's box of that kind of thing. And, and if you're, if what you're asking me is like, how do you use them in a good way? I mean, that's not what I do though. I'm not like, I'm not, I appreciate your question and get it, but that's not what I do. I'm not here to give like dating tips and dating advice. I'm here. I'm a journalist who investigates, a I think dangerous um, corporate corporate, a dangerous industry that is unregulated that needs to be regulated and that has underreported, except by me and a few other people, um, abuses and harms for users, ranging from, you know, lower anxiety, depression, all the things that all social media causes us, lowered self-esteem, um, all the way up to really, really serious um, things like sexual assault and even murder. There have been there was a grinder serial killer in the UK. So I mean, and there there have been murders of of 
of several different women that we know of. Watch my film Swiped, hooking up in the digital age, and you'll you'll hear more about that. And if you if you want to check it out, Nancy Jo Sales, author of Nothing Personal: My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno. I guess probably what I meant is what should people be aware of was probably a better way of putting it. I think okay. you, you I think you touched on that perfectly. So you you essentially answered my question by making it a better question. So I appreciate that. No, your question. Uh, Awesome. Uh, the, the one of the things that I know you found, and, I, and we don't have a whole lot of time left. I was going to touch on two things. One was not fun for young women. I think you've already you've you've talked spoken to a lot of women, young women who don't necessarily enjoy the experience of these dating apps. Period. But also, I was curious about COVID and how that's changed, and whether you think we may see something better come out of it. So I'll let you decide which of those two might be more interesting to tackle. Um. Well, COVID. I mean. I don't know if you you know this book by Naomi Klein called Shock Doctrine. And Shock Doctrine is about when there is a disaster in a country, how the government, especially if it's a repressive government, uses or, or and also corporations use said disaster to exploit citizens because citizens are are you know in peril and need help. COVID was a shock doctrine for many industries, but especially very notably the dating uh, online dating industry, because suddenly there was no other way to date. People were, you know, people have been up until now, even, I mean, there was a little lull last summer when vaccines first came out before Omicron had hit where people were thinking like, okay, now we can start, you know, really young people, especially were like, yay, now we can date again. But um, I think with people, locked in their homes, in quarantine, being wary of, you know, catching something from someone. There's been this captive audience for dating apps. And I, I do think from all reports, um, not a whole lot has changed. I do think in some instances, people are getting to be more serious about their life in general. You know, there's the, the great resignation where people in this country, as they're calling it, the great resignation are saying, you know, life's too short. I don't like my job. I'm going to leave my job. And I think there's something similar in some sectors going on in dating where people people are saying, I I, I don't like just bouncing around from person to person anymore. And I don't like these, you know, pointless conversations that go nowhere. I'm going to try and find something real in my life. I do think that's going on for some people, but I also think that there is also this just overall malaise that has happened where people just, it's really not, it's really not, uh, it's really not possible to just know somebody over a screen. I mean, you can't know somebody over a screen the same way that you can in person. You, you just absolutely can't. You, do, you don't, and especially over text, you don't pick up on the same cues, you know, again, not to go back on evolution, but, I've, I've learned through my reading and my interviewing people, uh, scientists, that we've evolved to really rely so much on physical cues that just don't even exist on, you know, messaging on uh, beyond even language. So don't really exist in texting, which is this kind of like clunky, awkward, curtailed sort of communication and certainly don't ex- exist in, in like messaging. So I think it's been really, really hard 
for people. I feel, I feel for people who are in the dating pool right now and who are trying to find a true connection. I really feel for people. I don't think this technology is making it easier. All of the uh, cheerleading, you know, articles and stuff that you read aside. Nancy Joe Sales, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thanks for having me. 